I'm Justin. And I'm Vivian. And we are your hosts for the podcast series called Mastering Your PhD, sponsored by Les Fonds de Recherche du Québec and powered by Neuro, next generation mental health platform. This podcast is for students by students, aimed primarily at graduate students like yourself, who are trying to navigate through the ultra-competitive and challenging world of academia. So today we're shifting perspectives. Instead of talking about the student's perspective, we're going to have a closer look at the supervisor's perspective. And the supervisor plays a super important role in creating <laughs> good lab culture around mental health. And we were so impressed by Adrian, uh, who is our guest for today. He is an assistant professor of neurology and neurosurgery at the Montreal Neurological Institute at McGill University. And he talks a lot about how he goes about creating a supportive mental health culture in his lab, how he actually goes about caring uh, about the mental health of his students. And all the while being a father, a husband, you know, new to the country as well. He was in, from France and then he moved to New York and then Montreal. So it's very interesting to know how he balances all these different aspects of his life. Mm -hmm. And get an insider scoop on his secrets. So we're so excited to have you listen in on our conversation with Adrian. So we're so delighted to have here on the podcast today, uh, Dr. Adrian Pirak. He is an assistant professor in neurology and neuroscience at the Montreal Neurological Institute. He is a Kalam laureate. Uh, he did his PhD in France, his postdoc in New York, and is now running his lab at McGill. And his research is really interested in looking at the cognitive processes that humans use to navigate in their environment and looking at how slight modifications in this brain network can lead to brain disorders. Welcome. So, yeah, welcome welcome to this podcast, Adrian. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit uh, to, you know, about your research right now and, and a little bit about how you got here. Uh, well, that's a long story. I'll, I'll try to be brief. Um, so what we are uh, really interested in is uh, to understand how different brain networks in the, like, in the brain uh, communicate with each other. And, and we're looking at how this process takes place at the, at the level of single neuron, like, which is you know, the um, electrical cells of the brain. And we're trying to understand how these neurons communicate with each other within individual brain networks and across brain networks uh, as uh, animals, you know, do something and learn mm. something. And, and one of the best models you can use to, uh, to uh, investigate these questions is spatial cognition. It's spatial navigation. Why? Because, you know, small rodents and as almost all animals, they navigate to survive, to, um, to find food and, uh, and to find... Um, and to mate. So, so, so studying spatial navigation is an extremely powerful model to understand uh, how cognitive processes uh, take place in, in the brain. So we do it, most of our work uh, in, in rodents, and, but obviously we're always interested to understand a bit what is going on, you know, in the, in the human species as well. So uh, trying to foster discussion with, with other researchers. But, but yes, yeah, this is what we do. And, and in, in terms of techniques, we, we try to, to record as many neurons as possible simultaneously in freely moving animals. So That's these a, little a mice. <laughs> like, you can't even imagine. It is. It is. It's it is crazy. quite challenging, you know. Uh, ask, ask the people in the lab. It's not an easy trick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just crazy. You know, you're saying it, your thoughts. We're talking about your sensations, your desires, your emotions. Your, just the fact of living, you know, it's just a... It comes from a... We're talking about billions of neurons working together. 
So is your goal to record billions of neurons all together at the same time while an animal is uh, alive? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. It's like, do you, is the goal really to record everything or not? Uh, my, my, my take on this will be no. Just like have a high quality recording of exactly the population you're interested in. Trying to record everything will be at the cost or the expense of, of the quality of, of your right. whole experiment. Mm-hmm, right, right. Uh, and what do you know right now in this field of spatial navigation? Um, do people know what part of the brain lights up? What, what do people know about even the electro, uh, electrical signals that fire during this process? Absolutely. So uh, actually, the first discoveries were made by um, a McGill alumnus uh, called John O'Keefe, who did his PhD at McGill and then left to uh, London, unfortunately, because uh, soon after he left, he um, placed electrodes in uh, freely moving rats. And he discovered that in a brain region called the hippocampus, neurons fire, meaning that they are electrically active. Each uh, each neuron is active for specific location of the animal in the environment, right? So if I'm at the corner of the room, there will be one neuron firing. At another corner, there will be another uh, neuron. At the center, it will be another neuron. Altogether, they form a map. If you, re- if you listen to the activity, to the electrical activity of all these neurons, you can basically decode where the animal is, which is amazing. And it's so amazing that actually it was awarded the Nobel Prize wow. uh, six years ago for that. Um, is that linked so, to the taxi experiment in London? Exactly. Absolutely. So, uh, so this is... Um, this is uh, from from the lab of of of, of uh, Eleanor Maguire, uh, also in London, which is part of the same institute. And and yes, what they observe is that the cab drivers in London who have no choice but knowing the map of London by heart uh, because they're not allowed to rely on maps or electronic devices, they have a bigger hippocampus than the average human. Amazing. Yeah. It's yeah. Crazy. And so, and, and again, so I think, you know, uh, and, and perhaps you're not aware of that yet, but I'm pretty sure that the word hippocampus is going to show up like many times during our conversation, because not only this um, brain structure is essential for spatial cognition, but it's also essential for the formation of long-term memories. And very interestingly, and nobody really understands why, um, the hippocampus is very, very much affected in depression mm. and many other neuronal disorders. Uh, when it comes to Alzheimer's disease, uh, this is one of the first structures uh, which is affected. So really at the center stage of very high level cognition in the brain and unsurprisingly also uh, very much affected in many neurological disorders. Uh, it was uh, epilepsy also. Mm-hmm. So I guess the chicken and the egg question is, does a small hippocampus cause the Alzheimer's and depression or does the Alzheimer's and depression cause the hippocampus to be small? Uh, uh, for Alzheimer's, I don't know. For depression, again, we don't know. Again, the chicken and the egg, right. absolutely. <laughs> what we know is that depression is associated with a reduced volume of the hippocampus. That is uh, well established now. The reason is extremely unclear but is it like a muscle where okay if i decide to be a a cab driver tomorrow morning and have to learn a map would my hippocampus grow or are we become less depressed (laughs) or less depressed yeah yeah really Uh, no 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 you're you're laughing but i I think absolutely wow absolutely i mean it's uh (laughs) 
I mean, yes, uh, if you're starting, if you want to be a cab driver and start, you know, uh, memorizing the uh, the map of London by learning every day, spending hours every day learning it, I am pretty sure actually Hippocampus will grow. Um, and some people, um, I don't want to comment too much on it. I'm not an expert, again, uh, on these questions. But some people will argue that, yes, it will certainly uh, decrease the odds that you get depressed if there is a relationship. Uh, this is far-fetched. This is very speculative. However, yes, you know, mental activity, basically, you know, high level of mental activity in your life will preserve your brain against many um, uh, failures. That is a known fact. People, I, 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 you know, don't get me started because then I can talk for hours. But, <laughs> um, there's a very famous experiment in the US where uh, they studied nuns, you know, uh, they, 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 they dedicated their life to, 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 to God and Christ. And, and there are two categories of nuns in the same monastery. Those that actually work in the field and those that study the Bible and, and have high, you know, cognitive activity. And in terms of lifespan and, and most health conditions, they're the same. However, it was very clear that the one that had like a very strong intellectual life had um, an onset of neuro uh, neurological disorders such as Alzheimer's disease that was delayed by up to eight years wow. uh, on average. And, and this is something that is called the uh, cognitive uh, reserve. It's like, like, it's not that their brain, it's not like a muscle, it's not that their brain is bigger. It's just that they are, you're forming more connection and your brain mm. is intrinsically more, more plastic. Exactly. So, but very interestingly, if you do post-mortem histology on these brains, they're the same. So it's not that you're not, you're not ill, you know, that you don't have the disease, is that your brain actually finds ways to circumvent the problem. It compensates for if you're lacking one strategy, one, one cognitive strategy, it will compensate with another one because he has developed so many different strategies and parallel strategies to, to make you, you know, uh, a functional per individual. Right. So right. Wow. That's, that's mind-blowing. Cool. <laughs> so, yeah. so is your research then, I'm, I'm curious about where your research fits into this and what question are you asking? Is it how, it, how does the brain adapt uh, to, to, to be plastic in terms of the hippocampus? Or could you talk a bit about where your research fits in? Uh, so yes, uh, so one actually, we, of course, we don't study only one question, but right. one thing that has really, you know, driven me since I'm a PhD student myself, even actually a bit before that, was um, what is the role of sleep in learning? Interesting. And now you're asking me is like, how is it related to hip, to the hippocampus? Well, actually, it's amazing because as I told you, the hippocampus is has these play cells these neurons that code for where you are and that form the co a cognitive map. And what was found 25 years ago is that when you go to sleep, all the trajectories that you experienced during previous wake, uh, you know, uh, when, when you were awake, like, you know, I went, you know, to, 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 I, uh, I went to, to, to work. I, I, I was outside. I, perhaps it was also non-spatial navigation. Perhaps I read a yeah. book and mm -hmm. I watched a movie. All this information that is encoded by sequences of neurons in your hippocampus, you know, being activated one after the other from my, from my way home to, you know, home to work or during the movie, these sequences are replayed during sleep. 
Wow. Right? So during sleep, you replay what you've experienced. And, and basically, your brain is taking advantage of being offline to say, now it's time energy to reprocess that. all these memories. Yeah. Right. Wow. And, and because it takes time, you know, you're, you have the same number of neurons. Basically, yeah. actually, no, you're losing neurons every day of your <laughs> adult life. Yet you can form new memories. How does it work? Well, it's actually a very slow process. You know, you're pushing, you know, a new memory in the middle of older memories. You make sure that you do not erase uh, anything important. And but this takes time. And we think in humans actually to consolidate a, a given memory of something uh, which matters, like something that you will remember for your entire lifespan. It takes up to one or two years. Mm. So your hippocampus, like basically very quickly learning this, it's like, you know, um, a very a one-shot learner, we call it. It's like you learn immediately, but then you, you replace it and in the cortex, which, you know, is like all this mantle uh, of neurons uh, right below the skull, your your cortex learns over and over gradually and, and integrates this new information, right? Uh, so this is what we, we we want to understand in the lab. And we do it with small rodents. Uh, we we record in the hippocampus and associated associated structures, and 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 now you understand why you know spatial navigation and and memory formation are two questions that are intrinsically related to yeah. each other. Uh, it's like and and even to me, I know too many people who who study either one or the other question, and I'm always telling them, how is that possible? These two questions cannot be addressed separately. It's a part of the same thing. Ah. Uh. And sleep and all that. So you said sleep was the real inspiration behind your work today. What in your life or what in your experience generated that inspiration? Was it a good night's sleep? Uh, it's a funny story. <laughs> so now it's it's a very interesting, uh, it's a very funny story, actually. So, you know, in life, you, you have to take opportunities, you know, when, you know, you're, you're offered such an opportunity. Uh and I, I didn't never really thought about it before. Um, but here's what actually the day I was convinced that this is what I wanted to do with my life is I was still like a master's student in Paris. And I was working actually on computational models, like trying to understand it on a computer with a mathematical model um, how the brain could navigate in space. I was a bit frustrated because I was reading all these papers by you know neurobiologists and neuroscientists, and I was like, well, we're always lagging behind. You know, we're learning from them. We're trying to test hypotheses on a computer, but it's a bit frustrating because they are the one, uh, you know, creating the knowledge. Uh, the new stuff comes from here, not from my computer. So there was like people advising me, say, oh, you should visit this lab. There's this, you know, uh, guy, young guy in Paris. He just started this lab, like his team, and he's doing some cool recordings in the hippocampus. You should go and pay him a visit. So I, I sent him an email. He's like, yeah, sure. And I, and I remember this day, and I will never forget it. So I entered, you know, the lab. It was my first time, actually, like in a lab like this. Um, and, and we entered the recording room, and it, in, and it tells me, uh, please be quiet. There's a rat asleep. <laughs> rat asleep. Uh, and I'm like, okay. Uh, and there's this tent, you know, so I cannot see the rat. And you tell me, yeah, there's a rat sleeping there. And say, look here. So there are two flat screens, you know, on the wall filled with, you know, waves in all colors and going up, down, like all sort of really weird patterns. I cannot make any sense to me. I'm like totally lost. I was like, what is this? 
And and the guide starts telling me about like, yeah, here you see, um, this is a slow oscillation of sleep. Oh, here you see a, a ripple in the spindles. That didn't make any sense to me. However, it was beautiful. And and when I saw this, I remember, you know, stepping out of this uh, recording room and telling myself, this is what I'm going to do with my life. Wow. <laughs> and this guy actually eventually became my PhD advisor. Oh, and, uh, and, and I'm still doing this. It's like, you know, like the be- just the beauty of seeing a, a, a brain when it's asleep, all the, the dynamics and the waves it generates. Uh, and because all these neurons communicate with each other in very peculiar ways, and it's beautiful to watch. It's just beautiful to watch. Uh, and I'm still studying it today. Right. And there's a default mode network that is, that is involved here. Is it just in the hippocampus? Do you, are you looking into uh, or yeah. are you looking so, to connectivity? So this is this is another thing. So the default mode network, very interesting uh, discovery, early 2000 in humans actually. So that there are networks in the brain, and one that is activated, which is, which is kind of I would say it's a default mode. Yes, this is its name. So basically, when you're not doing anything, when you're not actively engaged uh, with the external world, when you're basically in introspective mode, right? Mm-hmm. This will there will be this network of, of, of brain areas that becomes activated. Is it related to the hippocampus? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I don't want to comment too much on it because there's not been a lot of studies in animals or convincing studies, I would say, in animals really you know, bridging the gap between these findings in humans and, and in animals. So it's it's always a bit complicated to interpret uh, fMRI data and make sure like of what it means exactly in terms of 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 ne- neurophysiology. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Wow. And then can you talk a bit about you know it seems like your eventual goal is to move towards treatments for for psychiatric disorders like you know depression and and all that. And um, could you talk a bit about um, how you envision your research doing something like that? You know, big picture, what would your research findings kind of kind of lead to in terms of treatment? So there, there are many answers to this question. I And I feel myself like there, there are many ways, actually, I, I participate in, in health research. One is to provide my expertise in, uh, you know, multi-electrode recordings, in vivo recordings to people who actually do uh, health research and and helping them on like you know on a given project uh say well i'm gonna help you out by doing this part of the project because i think it's interesting and i can provide you with some interesting data so this is something for example i've done i'm a co-author on a paper on depression uh in which they really had isolated a pathway in the hippocampus by the way very like very precise molecular pathway and they did in vivo manipulation and basically i help them setting up electrophysiology, meaning recording neurons in the brain uh, in their lab. So, you know, I visited their lab like twice, three days. We worked like crazy three days in a row. And uh, and at the end, we had the data and it was eventually published in a very big journal, which was very interesting. Uh, so this is one way of doing this. The other way, which is more active, is um, as I very quickly uh, said uh, at the beginning, one of the the, the 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 neurological disorders that is um, very central, I would say, uh, in the hippocampus is epilepsy, and the reason why is that the hippocampus 
is very vulnerable to epileptic, uh, epileptic form, as we called it, uh, activity for many different reasons I don't want to get into, but like a good third, if not a half of epileptic patients have issues with, the, with their hippocampus or surrounding areas. And, and this is something now that at, at the Institute we're starting. So the Institute is very famous for operating epileptic patients since it's, uh, you know, uh, beginning the MNI, like since uh, the early, like the early 40s. Wilder Penfield um, and all that. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Wilder Penfield was, you know, uh, one of the godfathers of, 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 of this field. Mm. And, and, and we have, like, in the Institute, still patients coming uh, to actually, you know, to be treated for their epilepsy. And, and in one of these procedures is to implant them with electrodes in their brain to localize where is the epileptic zone, meaning where is a tissue that is epileptic. Because believe it or not, with fMRI, with EEG, like electroencephalography, or with magnetoencephalography, in many cases, you're not even able to say where it is. So you have to go invasive. You have to actually put electrodes in the brain, several, you know, and wait for the patient to, to have a seizure or actually multiple seizures in the hospital. And then, then the neurologist look at the data, looks at the patterns of electrical activation on the different electrodes and say, this is there. And in some mm. cases, Unfortunately, they can't. But you know, in fifty percent of the cases, basically, they say, "Well, we're sure it's here." Then they make a decision with a neurosurgeon. They will reject this part, and half of these patients will actually become seizure-free, which is a life changer for them because we're talking about life and or life or death sometimes. So, what I want to say here is that now we're starting this huge project where, in, in, on, on top of recording the brain waves, which we call the local field potential, which is yeah. like the, the, the average activity of, uh, of thousands, place. millions of neurons around the electrode. We're inserting at the same time, extra, like tiny electrodes, tiny wires, mm. much thinner than you know, uh, uh, hairs, that can record the activity of single neurons in the human brain. So you have a patient in front of you, awake, you can talk to with, with them, and, and you're recording tens of neurons at the same time. And now you can basically ask two big questions. One is, what is going on at the neuronal level uh, during epilepsy? And that informs the health community, right? So you're basically saying epilepsy, the origin of epilepsy is miscommunication between neurons. Here is what is happening in vivo in a patient. I can provide you with this data. The second big question is, let's play a game. Let's see what happens in your brain while you're learning something or while you're thinking about something because I can decode from your single neurons what is going That's on right. in your brain. Oh, my God. And, uh, and it opens, like, you know, so many new avenues and new, so many so new questions. lines of research. It's amazing. Yeah. Wow, it's awesome. So we're going to talk a little bit about your experience as a PI. So you're, uh, how long have you been a PI at Miguel? About around any, five years? Five years? Uh, five years, almost, almost. Okay. So what, what, you know, do you find it hard to become a PI? What's, how was the transition between being a postdoc or PhD student to a PI with the responsibility of a lab and responsibility of getting financing and responsibility of students on your hand? I think, uh, I think it's something in between like a gigantic slap in your face <laughs> and a tsunami, you know? <laughs> Uh, well, wow. <laughs> Clear enough. Do you want to become a PI? <laughs> Let me rethink that. <laughs> uh, you know, 
when I started, you know, one day you're a postdoc. I mean, sure, there's some transition. You're you're still yeah. in your postdoctoral lab, but you know you have a position and you start thinking about your position. You even start applying for your first grant, but you're still in your lab, you know, with mm. your friends. You have your small uh, like your small desk and mm. everything. And one day, you know, you take your bag, you change city, country, whatever. And 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 for me, it was like really I had a meeting at 10 a.m. with like whoever was in charge of the facility back then. And she was like, oh, yeah, hey, Adrian, welcome. Here are the keys of your lab. Wow. That's it. No. That's it. So, you know, five minutes later, I was sitting in the, in the room, empty, like an empty space with my laptop. I was like, why? What's happening to me? So, <laughs> what, what, basically, what you, you know, first? you open your laptop, you open your laptop, and suddenly you realize, hey, I don't even know how to connect to internet. <laughs> so you, you go back, you go back to the six four. Say, tick the, you knock on the door. Say, can I have like a code for the Wi Fi? Say, yeah. oh yeah, but you don't, you still don't have like your email. It's <laughs> kind of tough. I'm like, all right, don't worry, I'll find a way. Wow. And that is so. And and you know, you, it takes you know weeks, months to figure out how to order stuff, to buy things, and you start putting you know, all the paperwork lab. and stuff. And so, to so the very beginning, I mean, it's 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 it's. It's funny also. It's very exciting. You know, you have money yeah. and you you buy stuff. You don't really know what you're doing, but you're <laughs> trying to do your best. You're applying for your first big grant and everything. You're hiring people. And so this takes about two years, I would say. Then you reach a plateau and after between two and three years, you you already have some preliminary data, you know, you're and and then I'm still a single, I mean the and there's the second phase in which now you're trying to consolidate stories in the lab. So, and you know, it's going to take time, right? But you basically have this preliminary data. Some projects clearly work. Some other clearly was a bad idea. And you're like, okay, so, and you are going to work on this. You, you're going to work on this. And then, you know, it's going to take two years to actually collect the data, analyze the data. So I'm now at the end of the second phase. And then the third phase for me, which is starting right now, um, it's like, I'm already thinking about the lab, like the, like, you know, I'm starting to have turnover in the lab. I mean, my mm. first two postdocs may not stay f- more than a year now. Right. I'm hiring new postdocs and, and I'm like, wow, already? I mean, it's it crazy, so right? It's like, and, and, and you say, yeah, it was five years ago. So, you know, this this is the time, you know, I took for this postdoc and and now he's autonomous and sure he can run his own lab and he's ready for that. So... Okay. Do you think so, that the PIs should get some management training for, for you know, absolutely. human resources <laughs> or at least some human resources support right. for students? Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. It's amazing. I mean, you know, you're trained to be an expert in, in your field. In, with your, in your field. Uh, you can do crazy, you know, surgery or data analysis and suddenly... Uh, you're locked in your office, uh, spending your days uh, doing admin work. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to exaggerate too much because I still do a lot of science. I still spend my, you know, every day I talk with students and we we talk about data and, and and so I don't want to say that it's only about admin and it should not. However, I'm not doing a lot. I'm not doing a lot of what I've been trained for. Okay, of course I. It's be also because, you know, what I've learned, uh, I have trained people to do that. And now basically they can do it uh, and I can, I, and I have the eyes so that I know I can, I can make sure they do it right. I can supervise. However, as you said, uh, never train in management, never train in uh, uh, financial uh, accounting, you know, right. I mean, we're talking about 
hundreds of thousands of dollars. Man, yeah. I mean, I haven't seen that much money in my entire life. I mean, <laughs> yeah. You're like, I can do whatever I want with that, really? And they're Crazy. like, yeah. I was like, oh my God. Right. It's <laughs> so, it's yeah. like a supervisor is, is every, if, especially for a student, it's, a, it's also a mentor. It's also somebody that you look up to and there's, uh, and, and the supervisor himself is also has to be kind of a, a business person, yeah. has to be kind of a finance person, a human You know, it's interesting. Person. One thing we talk about a lot on the podcast is that supervisors are humans too. Yeah. And I think sometimes as grad students, we think that supervisors are this like superhero and they like somehow know how to do everything and they never struggle with mental health and, you know, and so and it's so interesting to hear kind of your struggles of, or even your, your, your feelings of inadequacy when you first started as a supervisor and being like, how do I do this? And, you know, how do I run? And I'm sure even now supervisors currently, and maybe you can share a little yeah, bit. I, yeah. I think, you know, one thing also you have to realize is uh, it's better now for me, but you know, the first year or two, I remember like sleepless nights where I was like, if I don't get this grant, I cannot pay them in six months. Yeah. Uh, perhaps not six months. I've never been like, it, the situation has never been that critical for me. I mean, I've been lucky. It's, it has never been critical, but you're, you can't help but projecting yourself like a year ahead. Yeah. And you know, in science, a year is like, time flies in science, you know, uh, the, the deadlines, you know, everything takes a lot of time. And you're like, if I don't get this grant, you know, this call or the next call, how do I pay these postdocs in a year from now? Right. And, 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 and it's impossible not to think about it. And it's tr- very stressful. And what and, happens and, if you can't? I don't know. It's a, you can't keep them. You can't, you can't. <laughs> but it's the same, you know, and as usual, and then, you know, this is crazy because one day you're stressing out that you may not be able to, to pay your postdoc. And six months later, perhaps a year later. So basically, you know, a year in advance, you're stressing out, you cannot pay them. And a year later, you're in a situation now you're stressed because you have too much money. <laughs> which is extre- which is extremely stressful as well because you know you made promise you 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 wrote grants and you got awarded grants and I'm right. like are the projects actually progressing mm. I like how can I justify I have to justify of the work right. that has been done can uh-huh. I justify it or not yeah and 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 that must be and, so yes. stressful I can't imagine I, it's a it's a better stress I have to admit <laughs> too, it's much a too much to money too much money too much too much money it's fine yeah but too, it's still so much. <laughs> You have to balance so much different stressors. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, so the amount of, I mean, I think, you know, society at large and academia in particular has evolved towards an, an over bureaucratic uh, system for good and bad reasons. Um, a good reason is that, of course, we're, we're, we're now in, we, we have budgets now that have never been heard of before. So, you know, we can do crazy things in a lab. Uh, and, and of course, we're, there's accountability. I mean, we, we need to justify how we spend money. So, uh, and, and that comes with a lot of, of admin work. And, and I think people in the lab don't realize it, but you know, I have to write reports and I, I have to, I have to basically approve every single purchase in the lab. I, I think people in the lab, they don't realize that yeah. every single thing they buy on whatever website, I will have to approve even if it costs only $5. And <laughs> then, you know, and, and the admin asked me, say, oh, which font shall I use for that? I'm like, I don't know. Like, you know, you have 10 <laughs> different grants and you have to basically in your head, you know, balance, say, well, okay, it's part of this budget. I'm going to pay yeah. for this and this and that. And it's always the same. And so you have... It takes a lot and you have to learn to, you know, to relax and, and to realize, hey, don't worry. I mean, 
You're not going to end up in jail if you do something bad as long as you do it in good faith. And, and if you made a, a major error, someone at McGill, you have to trust also the bureaucratic system to flag a problem. But you know, right. I got emails once, and just to give you one anecdote, but it's 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 speaking for it's like I got in emails, you know, from uh, McGill Financial Service, and you're like, uh, this order is not allowed, blah blah blah. And if you you start reading this email, and sure, your level of cortisone and stress <laughs> increases necessarily. You're like, oh, what did I do? And you realize it's because you paid for Nespresso coffee with a federal grant. And you're like, oh, come on, okay. Uh, and you're not allowed to do that. And like, oh yeah, sure, okay, that's a mistake. But but all these small things, I receive, you know, I don't know, emails every day uh, related to admin. But it, it takes a lot of of, of mental strength to mm. basically, first of all, to process everything on the fly, or at least in the in the day, because otherwise it accumulates extremely rapidly. Uh, so this is something I, I train myself. Say no, no, no. I'm taking care of all these small tasks, making sure it's done at the end of the day. Um, so it, it's it's a training because it's also it's like to to, to relieve, you know, to 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 to. To make sure that you're not under constant Pressure. stress of procrastination. I mean, yeah. say, like, oh, I should have done that yesterday, I didn't do it, now I have to do this. No, no, no. So the best way is to really make sure that everything you can do in less than 10 seconds, you do it immediately. And but it's also all this small delta of stress that accumulates very quickly. And mm. suddenly, you know, I, I I find myself, you know, I have days. Like, you know, this morning, I mean, I can tell you of my day. I mean, it's meetings after meetings. In between meetings, I'm writing a grant and I'm slacking with 10 different people in parallel with my lab. Uh, and, and you have like all these parallel things. And sometimes, for example, it happens to me in the middle of that afternoon. Sometimes I break down a bit. So I, I would do something stupid. And it happens to me. Uh, uh, like I remember, like a week or so ago, I, I emailed someone. I realized that I haven't read really the email, so I was like, "Oh!" And then you're trying to correct, you know, the wrong email you had sent, and you're doing, uh, and you're slacking with someone in parallel, and and something you have to realize. Say, no, 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 no. Yeah. You take a break now. Mm. Take a break now because your brain is overheating. Right. So I switch off my laptop. Yeah. I go and walk. I mean, not even outside. It doesn't have to be one hour. It just need. I need a reset. Right. Go and get a coffee. Go go and eat like you know uh, a pastry. piece of chocolate. <laughs> I do it. Too, I do it too often. Uh, <laughs> like my wife tells me. Uh, so I have to be careful with that. But and it's really important because then you have to realize like no 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 you're overheating and you get yeah. back and you say okay calm down calm down yeah. and and go and go and reset and start over. So. But you know, at the same time, I'm, I'm telling you all this, but it's very exciting. I mean, this, right. the, I, I really like it because it's like it's um, it's you feel that things are you know are progressing, and and you have all these projects, and it's it's, it's, it's yeah, it's uh, it's really rewarding also at the same time. And um, I just so anyway. want if I if I may go back to um, something you said, Adrian, about making promises and grants. And I think in my grad experience, that is the biggest stressor for me where I'm like, I can't deliver on the data I said I would have. <laughs> Even last week, you know, I was um, preparing for a meeting with my supervisor and I said, oh, the data's not looking the way I want it to look. And that stresses me out. And, um, you know, and this idea of progress that we're supposed to somehow achieve some really nice looking data and science is not like that, right? Like it's, science is not always going to turn out the way you think it, it, it is. Or, so, or, or, or as you wrote it in that or grant. Or as you wrote it in the <laughs> grant. Yeah, so, you know, how do you deal with this notion of quote-unquote failure or not progressing? And as fast as you would want. And so there, yeah. are, there are two different things. One is that you do not find what you 
had seen in the grant, which is totally okay. I mean, this is science. Uh, you write a grant, you say, this is my hypothesis, and I think that I'm going to find this and that. Of course, you're not going to find this and that. You're going to find something else, which is great. You're still doing science. That's a fine sentence. Uh, so on this, on this regard, you know, I'm, I'm totally relaxed. I mean, as long as we're doing great science and we're, not, we're using, you know, taxpayer money in a reasonable way, and to me, it's really important. I mean, not wasting money in stupid things. Uh, this is still taxpayer money for most of it. I'm totally fine. I don't care what was written in the grants. I mean, they got me, they gave me the money. They will not take it back from me <laughs> for, for scientific reason. I mean, yeah, right. Yeah. However, you know, you, you, at some point you like, you write different grants and because you know what is a success rate and you do your math and you're like, if I need this money, I need to apply that to that many grants and lucky, uh, lucky you, you know, you have many grants and you're like, whoa, Okay, mm. so now I have I need you know to find people to do this and and this project needs to advance though it needs progress mm. because even if we don't find exactly what we said we will be working on we still need to justify that we're spending money to work on this question mm. and this is could be stressing however I learned that it's okay you can everything can wait. Right. And I know I have some colleagues of mine uh, they are stressing out because of this they're like oh my project and I'm like. Who cares? If it takes two years to find a good person to work on it, just wait two years. Don't stress out. Right. Everything will be fine eventually. What's going to happen? And I mean, it, you know, that's one of the biggest lessons I think we kind of take from the pandemic, right? Like, I, I think people were kind of freaking out as well about not being able to go into lab and how that's going to affect productivity. And um, has there been, uh, was, was that fear uh, for you as well with the pandemic? And was there a stress around research productivity and how the pandemic would affect that? Absolutely. I mean, not for me. Uh, I think, you know, I was like, we are extremely lucky. We're in extremely privileged position. Our jobs are not, you know, at stake here. Um, We're doing science. It's fine. Uh, Everything can wait. So for me, it was absolutely fine. For people in the lab, it was like much more complicated. I mean, I, I, I as much as I tried to reassure them that it was okay, uh, many actually, many if not most, uh, were stressing out about their project not progressing, and you know, oh, my fellowship is gonna end, and uh, before the end of my uh, uh, of my project, and this and that. And yes, it's not easy. I mean, this 2020 uh, at any rate has been an extremely challenging year because and you're learning, you know, by trials and errors. Uh, and, and, and definitely one thing you have to realize as a manager, you know, because in this position, it's really being a manager, is that you're a sponge for all the stress. Right. So on top uh, of your so, stress... Yeah, sponge. yeah. <laughs> sponge for all the other people's wow. Exactly. So it's extremely important then to, on a personal level, to make sure you know how to um, get rid of this stress. Squeeze the sponge. <laughs> how? How yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, yeah, squeeze the sponge. And you know how, and, and you know, too often, and I know, I mean, you know, my wife has told me that, that sometimes, not during this pandemic much, but, you know, before that, uh, when I was starting my lab, uh, I, 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 I look like this very relaxed guy uh, to most people who know me, but when at home, uh, you know, evening, uh, whatever, suddenly I would have this burst of like, you know, um, 
of of of, of tension. And, and my wife's like, "What's you know, relax, it's fine." And I was like, "Sorry, sorry, yes." And 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 you need to train yourself also to realize that no, you've absorbed a lot of stress, and that takes a, a big toll on your uh, on you, and you cannot neglect you cannot overlook uh this and, and and then it's really important to go and play with your kids and 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 reset your brain in in any way you can um having a nintendo switch at home has you know uh been extremely helpful for me with my kids uh, yeah, yeah, because yeah. you know there's nothing better than playing mario to just forget <laughs> about you know the external world yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> And I'm glad so, you mentioned that because you're like, oh my God, if Adrian plays Mario, we could oh, all we play, can play Mario. Mario. <laughs> yeah, you have to. I mean, whatever it takes, you know, uh, if you're into music, reading, I mean, a bit of everything is even better. But yeah. And how do you find time to balance everything? Like your work you don't. life and your personal life? No, you don't. You don't. Your, uh, your life is like a constant stream of, of things to do. And uh And then you become extremely efficient at doing what you have to at saying no also mm-hmm. whenever you uh, should no. um, and to balance what really matters from what doesn't matter. And, uh, and your family is what matters uh, above everything else. Uh, your family and the, and the well-being, you know, also of the people you're working with. Uh, well, this is the, t- the topic of today, yeah. but that matters than any, more than anything else. And, and, and it's, it's great. And, and how do you do as a supervisor to assure that your students, that your, you know, your team is well mentally? What do you do personally? I, I think this, this is one of the most important questions, you know, you need to think of um, as, as a PI or the manager. Uh, I have many friends who have started their own business, you know, like totally unrelated to science. And, and now they have like extremely well-established methods to do that. Um, they have like daily or weekly questionnaires, surveys of, you know, of, of people and asking very few but key questions that inform a lot on, you know, how people feel. And, and, and we don't have this kind of things uh, in academia, of course. So, and they're so similar business and, and, and in a lab, you know, talking about the finance, the management, you know, there's so many things that can be shared Yeah, but I mean, I mean uh, usually, like you know, what you just mentioned, it's it's all on the shoulders of the PI. Uh, for when it comes to the student, the trainees, there most of the time it's just their scientific project and like whether it's progressing, how does it feel, um, and because science is like 95% failure, uh, of course, and this is really hard to. This is the, the most important thing to learn uh, as a PhD student. Um, so. You know, uh, you, you, you learn the people. I mean, I mean, there's no recipe. Um, different PIs will have totally different uh, strategies. Um, I would say my strategy, somehow there's two main axes. One is to rely on self-organization and make sure that it's self-organizing well. Uh, so it's uh, like lightly supervised self-organization. Uh, What does it mean? It means that if there's a problem, you make sure that actually... People find ways by talking to each other to find a solution. And some, and you will see spontaneous interaction emerging in a group and in a team to try to tackle one problem. You just need to make sure that it happened and, and it going in the right direction. It will, to me, it will be totally detrimental to supervise, you know, a collaboration or an interaction, meaning to, to force people to work together on something if they don't feel like it. Uh, so that's one thing. The second thing is to adapt uh, the style of management to each individual. Because different people have different expectations from their PI. Uh, 
and uh, and you need to learn. So usually the first year, it's you know for me, I'm I'm learning, and you know I can feel I, I, I and I'm fed by indirect feedback. Feedback, uh, of course, I, I can I can feel. I'm you know I have a social brain. I, there are things that I can read, and then you know eventually I adapt. And see, some people they want like rare but important interactions. Say, well, we're not going to talk every day, but whenever we talk, it's to go in, in depth. And totally fine. So all the people they want to basically share with me constantly every day what they've done, and, 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 I, and yeah, and and I kind of feel it's not that they want to to prove me that they're doing stuff; is that they need to actually prove that you know they, so they need true. to tell me that things. And I'm like totally fine. And what does it cost me? It costs me like you know a few lines on Slack, and I'm genuinely you know replying. Great, awesome. Yeah. And it's not. And sometimes and it only takes that to make them exactly. feel better. Exactly. Yeah. And, and 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 absolutely. Because it's like, you know, all these small rewards and say, yeah. And it's not that I do it automatically. I have not programmed a boat to do no, that no. on Slack. <laughs> I could. Uh, I genuinely read what they're saying. Yeah. And, and, and you're like, well, oh, oh, fantastic. You've done it today. This is great. Yeah. Do you find that your mode of supervision, supervision has changed or adapted at all since the pandemic? Has there been more? Have, did you use Slack before? And has there been? Yeah, uh, yeah, a yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, and and not only this is also so I'm I'm a French citizen, you know. So my family is in France, and um, many of my friends are in France. So and I I I I I, I moved to the US ten years ago, actually, exactly now. Uh, and uh, so it's been ten years, and so I spend most of my summers in France. And and even like the last three years, I actually spent my entire summer in France. So I was managing the lab from France, uh, you know, from my you're, parents you're or virtual. elsewhere. So I, I was virtual already and yeah. I knew it was working absolutely fine. And you also, and you realize also that after two months of summer in a lab without a PI, actually things went, you know, go pretty well because <laughs> yeah. it's, it's another thing actually we can talk about is, like the str- like the stress that students feel when the PI enter the room, mm, and and this point. has been well reported. And yeah. the fact that the PI is not physically there, it's I think also important. Hmm. Um, That's actually a very good point because I remember you know when a PI comes in a room, everyone qu- is so, quiet. So suddenly quiet. Suddenly you start <laughs> yeah. working harder. You don't know what's happening, but of sometimes course. that. To not have that overwhelming presence over you is is good. That's interesting. And that's why yeah. I liked what you said, Adrian, about the peer-to-peer support. And, you know, I think that's so critical to having a, a good mental well-being in the lab because you want people to be to be interacting and supporting each other without you constantly having to be there to oversee every interaction. I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I also learned my lessons from... Like as I was a postdoc at NYU in New York, I could see also all these young PIs in an extremely competitive and stressful environment. And I learned like what I should not do. Uh, you know, I remember this young PI was like actually an extremely nice guy, by the way, but who was reading, you know, uh, lab books of everyone every night. Oh, oh man, I'd and, be so stressed out. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. Uh, so that was like the first lesson is that you don't do that. (laughs) Second thing is also the labs that grow too big, especially in the US. That's, um, that's a disease in the US because, you know, they are given extremely large startup funds and, and you have this very young PI who suddenly hire five postdocs. 
you don't hire five postdocs if you don't know how to manage people. Right. Uh, right. So you start small. And, you know, the, my lab actually has grown pretty quickly big. Um, but we started, you know, we were like three, four in the first two years. And that was already a lot. And, and now I feel much more comfortable myself to grow the lab. And yes, there will be four postdocs actually this summer in the lab. But I feel totally fine by it because I'm like, yeah, it's fine. I know how to do it now. Three years ago, that would have been a catastrophe. Right. Uh, now I feel okay. I've learned. Right. Um, right. Take your time. Do you think that you want to grow? What's the What's the goal eventually to have the so huge you know if if you were like in management, uh, usually um, what really matters is the number of people who directly report to you. Uh, if you take the CEO of Apple, uh, it's a gigantic company. Uh, however. I'm sure there's not more than 10 people who report directly uh, to the CEO uh, because usually the number is about 10 to 15, not more, uh, because it's uh, otherwise it's impossible to manage. And in the lab, because academia is what it is uh, in its current format, uh, meaning it's a team led by a single PI, I think it's extremely dangerous to have more than 10, 15 people, including, you know, all the undergrads and, and the techs and 15 people total is actually, to me, the maximum people you should have in the lab. Unless you have like a research assistant, for example, when you can, that's basically the, the, the second expand. step. Yeah. Exactly. Then okay. you can expand when you have someone else that can take. But as long as you keep to this um, to this model of, 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 of a team, 10 people max, 15 Direct if you include, you know, other, and, and that's it. Uh, and, and, and the postdoc, my postdoctoral mentor, he's a world leader in his field, super famous guy, 15 people in this lab. Oh. Okay. And, you know, it's better like that. Yeah, I, I think that's a, actually a really good point that with a smaller lab too, you're able to tailor your individual mentoring style to actually... Right. To, to the students and what they need and Be what they want. When you, yeah, them. when you have such a big lab, like, you know, it, you're tempted to treat everyone just like as, as pawns or, you know, like, what can you do for me kind of thing. And and yeah. that's hard for grad students, I the, think. Well, but there are two other things, right? He, he, as an advisor, because you're an advisor, so you supervise some of the work, but uh, for a PhD or postdoc, you're first and foremost an advisor. You guide them in their scientific quest of whatever it is. Right. Um, you're, yeah, you're mentoring them also on all these things. You have to be knowledgeable of the project and you have to show them that you know. And sometimes you learn together, which is extremely exciting also, but you need to, 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 you need to know about the project. You, know? uh, you need to provide something which is like, broad picture, big picture, right. you know, vision. And like. yeah, and and having, you know, 30 projects on which you can feel like, you know, you're one of the top world experts, that is complicated. Mm. Uh, so no, 10 projects already, it's a lot in your mind. The second thing that you have to realize um, is that having someone in your lab is not only about having someone in the lab taking uh, a chair and a recording room. It's supervising him. So mean, making sure you can meet with him regularly. And it's also about like following him for years after that. Right. You're going to have to write the recommendation letters. You're going to have to to write reports. You're going to have to read his master thesis or his PhD thesis and his uh, half PhD, whatever. All these take a lot of time. An investment. So in unless you decide that you're not going to do that, which to me, it's not like it's impossible not to think option. this way. It's not an option, exactly. 
You cannot do that because I'm telling you, so the lab, 10 people now, but we already, I already have people who left the lab and undergrads, okay? Mm -hmm. Just undergrads who came to the lab and already left to other places. Just that takes me so much time. Like you can, you can imagine how many letters I have to write mm. because they're basically asking for a fellowship. And, yeah. and I, yes, I was their mentor as undergrad. So naturally they, they get to me to, to yeah. get a letter of recommendation. So, and I can imagine, I mean, my postdoctoral mentor, again, advisor, he was telling me that he spends on average 30 minutes to one hour every day oh, wow. writing letters. Wow. It's a lot of time. Every day. <laughs> yeah, imagine, so the guy, the guy is 70 years old now. So he has like a 40 year long uh, career or perhaps like 35 year long career at the PI. He imagine has like so students. many alumni. <laughs> yeah, so many alumni, so many people, even in the community at large. I mean, because then you start also writing letters to colleagues of yourself, like, you know, yeah. tenure and all these things. You write letters to in the community. It takes a Amazing. lot of time and, and it's not, it's not time that is wasted because when you review this, it's really important information. You know, I do also this, you know, review for the community and, and, and because it's a self-organized big effort, but it takes time. So no, you cannot have a big, extremely big lab. Right. And, uh, you know, how, how do you manage, it's a question that I've had for a long time, but how do you manage c competitivity in the in academia in general. And, you know, it influences our mental health in good and bad ways. But as a PI, I just feel like you're so, you have to be so competitive to be able to, you know, uh, you know uh, stand to survive. Out, yeah. Stand, stand out. out, you know, through grants, through your projects and everything. So, how does that, how does, you know, competition influence your, your mental health? Okay, so there are two levels of competition. One is getting grants. It's a highly competitive environment. Uh, yes, this is stressful, uh, but you have to trust the system somehow that at the end, if your productivity is good and your ideas are, are good, perhaps you're not going to get these grants the first or the second attempt, you'll get it the third time. Because again, the community is self-organized you know, self -organized and self-managed and, and we all know each other. And when you have like this super you know, productive person uh and you're like wait a minute it didn't it, it, it has like it doesn't have grant currently what is going on and people right. are like oh, no no you should get the grant and this is how it works right uh, uh so you have to trust the system uh that you will be supported as long as you're doing what you expected to deliver right. uh so this is what i'm trying to tell myself you know to relax <laughs> uh, when it comes to competition right. uh and so far it's been working well for me so yes. you know knock on wood uh right. it's gonna continue this way then it's the scientific competition uh which right. are two related but not directly related so meaning that you're working on projects is like what if, you know, tomorrow is like a paper is posted on the web doing exactly uh, something that one of my PhD students is doing. Mm. I, I'm also quite relaxed about it. I've been scooped in my life uh, already, you know, but it's never totally scooped. Like being scooped totally. I mean, if you also, you know, you have to talk to people and, and my strategy has always been to be extremely open about like what we're doing. So we go to conferences and I'm like, you know, present whatever you have on a poster, even if it's super preliminary, because people will see it and they will be like, ah, you know, this guy, like the, you know, guys in, in, in lab, like Perash lab, they're already working on it. So perhaps we should actually change direction in our product. And I've, this is the way I think it's like, you know, it's a bit like, hey, look, this is my territory now. Oh. Uh, but if, if you had this idea that you haven't started your project, get another idea. Uh, <laughs> right, right. So, uh, and, and it's working okay, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. and yeah. We have to see science as a 
global collaborative effort instead of, you know, just our project. Yes. You know, yes. You know MNI uh, is an open, now considered an open science institute, meaning that, you know, we're, they're, they're pushing uh, articles in science to be collaborative and, you know, to, to share data and stuff. Um, so it's that approach that we have to have in like, it's not, it's less competition, more collaboration. And I think that's the future. Yes, I agree. That will be great on the paper. However, the system, the yeah. system, I mean, the problem is that the, this, this big, you know, uh, big ideas are not well aligned with how the system works. It's like, works. if you want to get a job, you know, you'd get a bet, you'd get a bet, get a, a paper in a good journal. Yeah. Uh, and it's good to say, I'm it's open, like I'm open. It's a fairy tale, yes. maybe. Is it? It's a bit of a fairy tale mm. uh, in the current academic world, which yeah. is extremely competitive. So, so, yeah, being open for me has been also uh, mostly positive. Um, but, yeah. I, I, again, there's no recipe and things evolve all the time. It depends on the country, the situation, many things. So, But I think a lot of Lots changes to need done. to still happen in, in the culture. Institutionally. And yeah. So I, I really enjoyed, you know, what you talked about, Adrian, and, and I kind of, we can end on this point, but just about being a good manager as a PI and how much that can influence the lab culture, the mental health of grad students. And I like that um, you look at different businesses like Apple yeah. and the big corporations as examples mm -hmm. of how to manage people. You know, yeah. you have to, you don't get that education, so you have to look on your own and right, then figure right. it out, right? So yeah. I think we need more PIs okay. like you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, yeah. Well, you, you know, actually, the, the best lesson of management is to look at how the Roman Empire army was organized. <laughs> you see, that's what we're talking about. And you about. were a decurion, <laughs> so it basically was a unit of 10 people organizing a unit of 100 people and so on and so on. Right. Because, and, you know, when that's it comes it to organize big army, just as the Roman Empire, yeah. you know anything <laughs> exactly. about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Thank you so much, Adrian. Just, you know, we could end on this is... You know, for, for fellow PIs, you know, and there's, I'm sure they're struggling with this is, you know, when a student comes up to you and says they need help or they're in distress with their mental health, what do you do or who do you turn to? So, yeah, I think this is, you know, the very sensitive, very critical thing here on the topic of today. So there are several things here. First is to build a trust in your team that, if they want to, they don't necessarily have to, but if they want to share with you that they're having mental health issues or other issues, actually, they can trust you to, first of all, have a, like, you know, to, to listen to what they have to share and that you can perhaps provide help and, and, and that you're going to keep it absolutely confidential also, uh, which is, you know, the basis of trust. Uh, and so you have to build this, uh, this trust. And, and, and again, I want to, I want to really stress out here that it's not only about, mental health. It could be about harassment. It could be yeah. about many other issues and that you have to build this trust to say, if you have a problem, if you feel alone and if you feel that you cannot talk to anyone, I am your first point of contact that will make things happen uh, if needs to. And this is extremely important. Um, it's a big responsibility on your it's part. It's a too. big responsibility. Uh, however, I mean, then to me, you know, it's, 
uh, it's not easy. First of all, of course, when I know that something someone has uh, also issues, it makes also my own supervision easier because I know that I need to recalibrate my expectations. And this is extremely important. You know, uh, some people will be, for example, extremely productive at some points and, and it will drop. And if you don't have like the entire context, you're just wondering like what is happening? Is there a problem with the experiment? Is there a problem with something else? So, you, But again, you know, people do not have to share this information with the PI or with me. It's, it's just making them feel like they can if they that want they to. they can if they want um, to. Also, you cannot expect people to, to read too much between the lines. Sometimes you have to have explicitly to say. say things. Yeah. And so you have to tell people explicitly, mm. if you have a problem, you have to trust me. If you do not trust me, I cannot blame you on that. I mean, that's your own feeling. But believe me, I'm telling you, you can trust me. Mm. Uh, and you know, you know, and, and you know what happened is that in the weeks that followed, uh, people shared a lot of information with me. Were you shocked? I think the most, the thing that shocked me the most in in the last months, and I think this is really the the, the, the topics of today, is to realize how you know, widespread mental health problems were uh, in, the, in, in the student community. And this is something I, I had overlooked myself totally uh, because I was lucky enough not to have any of this problem myself so far, mm. you know, so far, because, you know, that basically the probability to get a mental breakdown in your life is close to 100% at least once. Uh, for anybody. Uh, so, so far, I've been lucky enough that it did not happen to me. Um, and, but I like, you know, I am part, and it's not only about my students. Uh, I know them and they're telling me things and okay. Uh, and I'm realizing that, yes, it's some situation I'm not, not definitely not easy. But I'm also part of PhD committees uh, and I'm following indirectly many students and I know them well. You know, you go to several of these meetings you, you, and you interact with them at multiple occasions and, and you realize that actually over and over uh, you encounter students clearly having issues uh, during the PhD, especially, I would say. Um, I'm sure there are many problems at the postdoctoral level. But PhD is a really tough time. Uh, I know that. And it was hard for me as well. Uh, but even if it went extremely well, but it's tough because you're lost. You're lost. You don't know what to do. You have to learn so much. You, you, you have the feeling that you always need to, to do more, that you don't do enough experiments. You don't, you don't read enough. You don't uh, do enough uh, figures for your PI. You don't that feel good enough. You don't feel good enough. Um, and, and, and that this guy, you know, in the other lab or even in the same lab, you know, is performing so much better than me. Uh, and that has a, a gigantic toll on mental health. Um, and it's hard because I, I don't have a solution. My, my, my personal solution is to be patient, first of all. I mean, I'm patient. I, I know things take time and, you know. Just the fact takes... that you're there, that you're listening to your yeah. students, it helps so much. I also, you know, in retrospect, so many times I'm thinking of like a meeting we had. We, I'm, still, I'm still, you know, managing and advising. And sometimes I have to say things that are unpleasant to hear. Say, you did something wrong here. You did the wrong experiment. You just wasted somehow. Was just wait, Yeah, you just wasted thousands of dollars of taxpayer money running uh, this experiment the wrong way. And I know by saying this, I'm, I'm, you know, sometimes I'm not as as cool as. A, and sometimes I have to act as a manager, saying, "No, this was bad. 
And I'm not super happy right now. And I know also that by saying so and having this attitude has a toll on that. But how do you balance all this? I mean, and, and what you have to realize as a student is that the, the, the manager, the PI himself is struggling because he knows. But at the same time, if you don't say anything, I, I mean, I know for a fact that having someone who never says anything, say, don't worry, it's fine. Then things do not happen. So you, you also need, you know, the incentive to say, no, I'm not happy. Because otherwise you're going to repeat the same error over and over. So where is the right cursor? I, I don't know. I don't know. We're humans, right? We're humans after all. We're both the professors, both the students on yeah. both sides. We're just trying to do our best. And I think if we understand that on both sides, it will go a long way. So thank you so much, Adrian, for being with us. It was such an informative and interesting conversation. I think it's going to help not only students, but it's going to help other PIs and professors yeah. and future PIs and professors as well. For sure. All right. Thank you well, so real much. Real pleasure to be here. Uh, good luck with your show. Uh, it looks super interesting. Thank you. All right. Cool. So good luck with your studies and you. uh, and congrats for, for, for doing this. I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great initiative. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Thank you.